Welcome to the Gab Talks by the Independent Press Award. I'm your hostess, Gabby Olzak. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Timothy J. Brown, author of No One Cheers for Goliath, winner of the 2022 New York City Big Book Award for African-American nonfiction. Tim earned his BA and MA degrees in communication studies from Westchester University. He received his doctorate at Ohio University School of Interpersonal Communications Program, now the School of Communication Studies in the Scripps College of Communication. It was at Ohio University where he met his wife, Laura Hamilton Brown, PhD. Tim is currently the Dean of Liberal Arts at Montgomery County Community College, where he oversees 15 departments encompassing the arts and humanities and social sciences. Tim's work focuses on the intersection of culture, communication, and identity. He has made over 80 presentations, has co-authored several textbooks, and is a national motivational speaker and workshop presenter on leadership skills. No One Cheers for Goliath is a testimony of obstacles overcome and leadership lessons learned. Congratulations, Tim, and welcome to The Gab. Thanks, Gabby. Thanks for having me here today. Well, let me just first say, I, I know we had a brief bio of you, but that doesn't even really, it's not even the tip of the iceberg. So our readers can find out more about you another time, but you're needless to say, extremely accomplished. So Tim, in the book, you said, as a leader, expect to be criticized, to be rooted against, and yeah. to be undermined, no matter how effective you are. And yeah. as you said, no one cheers for Goliath. So explain the quote and the reference. Yes. And so uh, one of the areas that I uh, like to research is sports communication because I was a former high school athlete. And so one of the greatest basketball players of all time was uh, Wilt Chamberlain. And so he played a lot of his years at, in Philadelphia for the Sixers. And so I talk about in the book how Wilt Chamberlain has over 70 uh, records in the NBA. A lot of them will never be broken. So one of the famous ones is that he scored 100 points in one in one game. And so when it came to Chamberlain, he was this person that since he was so superior, like people then kind of saw his feats as just commonplace, as, as just the average of what he was doing. And they didn't appreciate, right, how great he was. And so after one of his games, when I think the team didn't do well, he made that quote that he said, well, you know, no one roots for Goliath. And so when I thought about that quote, I thought it was a really good way to really summarize what leadership is, is you're right, when you're in a leadership position, you tend to be people don't see you as a person. They don't think about, you know, where you're coming from or your perspective or your feelings. And what happens is that a lot of times people will root against you or try to work, you know, against you as a leader because of their own self-interest. And so I thought it was a great quote to use to summarize and use the title for my book and to talk about my journey. I thought it was. It was so appropriate. You know, you people think uh, you have such a, a tremendous career in academia, but in your book, you outline and I won't give away anything. No spoilers here, but it, it wasn't an easy road no. up that path up that ladder for you at all. And it's really inspirational to kids out there who might not Absolutely. be straight A students. You credit Dr. Cleansing, the then chair yeah. of the Department of Communication Studies at Westchester University to be one of the first individuals who influenced your development as a person and as a leader. So how did that happen? Yeah, it just happened. I, and I would even go back a little further that, you know, I grew up in Coatesville, PA, which is outside of Philadelphia suburbs. 
And it was a steel mill town. And so most people were connected to the steel mill. And that was true of my family. My father was a steel worker. And so, you know, I was a first generation college student. And so even though Coatesville was only about 12 miles or so from Westchester University, it was a different world when I got there. And so I went through culture shock. So now we think about, you know, the transitions and first generation college, we were more aware of it. But back then, that wasn't something that people talked about or focused on. And so, you know, after the first semester, I was on academic probation. And so I was like, really like, wow, you know, I've got to do something to be able to turn this around or else I'm not going to make it. And so it was really for me, then I had to reach out to folks to get help and ask questions. And so Dr. Cleansing was one of those folks who responded to me and kind of saw those things in me before I saw it in myself. And so it's just part of that pathway that we had. And we've had since that time, you know, that we've been able to communicate. We're still friends to this day. I still communicate with them uh, from time to time. But Denny was the one who pushed me, encouraged me to go to graduate school. He was the one that kept track of my academic progress, that he recruited me back to Westchester. And then after I got to Westchester, after five years, I succeeded him as chair. And so he was chair Wow, <laughs> 26 years. So that's why I saw, you know, when I when that first happened, I was like, man, I probably got a good story because, you know, that doesn't happen. No, the dean that you go back and think about it, uh, Gabby, when I took over as chair, I became chair about half the faculty members were faculty members when I was a student. So think wow. about that. As a young man. Now you're the boss of the people that you had as a student. So I thought, yeah, how that, did that wow. go? How did that work out for you? Well, you know, I just, I guess part of it, you're being naive when you're young. And uh, I just kind of seamlessly went into it. And I just started, you know, work on the things that we wanted to always change. And and I felt like as I worked with the faculty and I was diligent and followed up and we started having successes, I think people saw me more and more in that role. Now, as a peer rather than a student. Correct. Correct. And one of the funny things I found out years later from one of the faculty members are like, you know, Denny had been there so long, people were a little bit intimidated. So they were like, no one wanted to run for chair because we thought that next person would be a failure. And then we would run after that person, you know, so I just <laughs> wow. yeah, they told me that. But but yeah, I just kind of and that I think sums up my work. I think I each position, I just try to roll my sleeves up. I try to be pragmatic. How can we go from A to B? And I think People kind of respect that. So apparently so. So, you know, getting back to it wasn't an easy path for you. You shared that one of the worst experiences in your life was when you were intentionally not given the opportunity to be quarterback on your high school, not even given that opportunity. And you said that it gave you the knowledge and experience you needed to succeed as a leader. So how did that I don't want to call it a failure because it wasn't your failure. It was obviously their failure. How did that obstacle help you? Yeah, it was one of those disappointments. And so at the time, you know, it was devastating for me because, again, you know, as a young kid, kid growing up, you know, you think, oh, you just work hard, you do these things and, and, and you'll be able to, you know, be able to be successful. And so, of course, as I talked about in Coatesville, Steel Mill Town, and one of the things that brings the community together is the sports programs, just like a lot of towns in Pennsylvania and the Midwest and so forth. And so, you know, my dream was always to be the quarter. I wanted to be a quarterback for the Coastal Red Raiders High School. And so when I got to about 10th grade, they started, you know, I practiced with the quarterbacks. And then when we got to the game, they would put me in it as a defensive back. And it wasn't to the point that my father had asked me, he said, hey, how come you're not playing? And I said, I don't know. And, and what happened was my father uh, decided to stop by one of the practices to talk to my uh, quarterbacks coach. And so for folks who might know my dad, like he's not 
a boisterous person. So for him to kind of do that, when I came off that field, I was like, oh man, I was thinking something must be, you know, not but not be right because of my father here. And I saw my quarterback coach, his face was like red as a tomato. And so he just said to me, he said, hey, he said, you know, Tim, he said, um, talk to your father. And he said, you know, I should talk to you. And he said that, you know, you've done everything we wanted you to do. You improved a hundred percent, but we're going to put some of the but, young guys in, in that position. Uh, and so it was crushing at that time. Oh gosh. Yeah. It was really crushing, you know, and I, and I was like, I wasn't a quitter. So I was like, okay, I'll just play out as they want me to play out and, and continue with the team. But the skills that I learned as a quarterback, cause you're always taught about, you know, how to be dedicated and how to make sacrifices and how to be the first one in the last one out, right. How to be able to help and support your other teammates, right. If they're not in the right position, you got to coach them up. And so I found that as I started taking leadership positions, all those things I learned about being a quarterback, I, I use them every day in a leadership position, whether I was a department chair or, you know, dean. And it's very true, just like quarterbacks is the same, like being in a leadership position, right? When, it, when things go well, all the praise goes to the quarterback. When things don't go well, all the blame goes to the quarterback. And same thing with leadership. So I felt like even though it didn't turn out, I didn't have the opportunity there in high school. All those skills that I learned is something I use every day in academe. And, and I've been very conscious in my career then that, you know, if people are just given the opportunity to support, they can be successful because that's what happened with me. And because I didn't have that experience back then, I try to do that for others. You turn a negative into a positive. Yep. So Frederick Douglass, a giant in social reform, you, you speak yep. about him a lot in the book. He said, if there's no struggle, there's no progress. Yes. Why is it important for us to remember that as a leader? I think the most important thing is, is to realize is that it's not just happening to us, but it also happens to the folks around us. And I think if we can be conscious of that, we can be a lot more empathetic to the folks that we work with. And that was kind of another sub reason why I wrote the book is because I felt like once I started uh, attaining different leadership positions, I didn't really see a lot of model. There weren't a lot of Denny cleansings, right? When I was going through the process, I felt like there were a lot of folks that were either, I would say, you know, like the micromanager, they would give you something and then, you know, every, you know, so often, hey, are you doing this? Are you contacting mm -hmm. these people? Are you following these? I'm like, well, if you're going to just tell me everything to do, why, right? Why am I in this role? And then I felt there was also the other continuum that I experienced was the, what I call the Monday morning quarterback uh, folks is that, you know, you're going, you're making project progress, you have success. And then the person after fact will say, you know what, I would have did it di differently this way. I'm like, well, mm -hmm. that's great now that you're telling me now. And so I felt like being a servant leader, which I talk about in the book, I think is a good middle road because you're a lot more relational and empathetic with people. And I think we have to remember the struggles. A lot of times we don't know the struggles or see the struggles, but as you know people, you get to understand that and then you can help guide them as they go through the process. Like a good quarterback, know your players, yep. know your people. Absolutely. So what do you think, Tim, are the most important traits of an effective leader then? Yeah, I think first of all is, is really overlooked, but listen. A lot of times if you listen to people, they actually kind of know what they need to do and they might even have some ideas and you might help them kind of then put that plan together. But if you listen to people and that helps them kind of understand where they need to go or what the direction needs to do. And then you just add some other suggestions on top of it. And by listening, I mean, it's not like a passive process, but you, you know, you ask questions, you have follow-ups, you work through scenarios with them. 
And sometimes you let people sit on that. Okay, well, we talked about some things today. Uh, think about it. When you come back money, let's pick this back up and see what other thoughts you have, right? And that's all part of that process. I think being empathetic, especially nowadays and where we are in the post-pandemic, we have to be empathetic with people. There's a lot of things that are going on with people, with students, with colleagues. You know, think about the stress that people have. Think about the concern they have. You know, a lot of people have lost loved ones during this time. There's this all this, you know, working on line that we have to deal with. And so I think being empathetic with folks goes a long way because I felt like if if you just kind of know where people are and know a little bit more about them and can help them through the process, when you have to get tasks done, I feel like those people, they tend to be then folks who will go through a brick wall for you. If they feel like if I got your back and you got my back, you have people that are really committed, not only just to the work in, uh, that they're dealing with, but the institution. And that's why I really think that you know, being a servant leader is really necessary nowadays because that's why you have a lot of people moving from place to place to place because they're looking for a place where they can really connect and where they feel like they're, they're being at home. I talk about in the book, um, I love Bell Hooks, right? She has this concept called the, the home place, right? It, like I was going to ask you about that. Tell us yeah, about the home place. Yeah. 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 When, you're, when you feel like you're a place that you know, you're understood, you don't have to explain mm -hmm. yourself, you feel like you're comfortable, and people are searching for that in work environments. And that's one thing I pride myself that, you know, you build relationship, people are empathetic, listen, it could become a home place for a people. Home place. A place of comfort. It's reassuring. Yep. You, yep. you kind of know what to expect. Yeah, I think a lot of people are missing that. And oh. and correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I feel like this whole email culture yep. is really making that very difficult. Do it you is. agree with that? Oh, I agree. I agree. I mean, we talk about this all the time on campus that sometimes it's easier to go over someone's office or pick up the phone and have a five minute, you know, conversation and that you can really straighten out a lot of things. When you go back and forth on this email, you know, you miss all the subtleties, right? You miss the implicit and the nonverbals and things. And I think that, you know, we need to be able to connect on a certain level in order to be able to have not only good communication, but then a good understanding of one, one another and build relationships. So I always try to do is, I know it's hard on my part, but I tend to have an open door policy. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not having a meeting or anything, my door is always open to my suite. And so I like it when people come by and we talk and we chit chat, because again, it's part of that. You get to know people. Yeah. And then when things come up, you're able like, hey, you know, you call so-and-so and then you, you work out whatever the task is and then you can go to the next thing. And in creating that home place. Yep. So, so Tim, you came from a really strong family unit. Yes. Your parents were married for 54 years. Yep. Uh, they were tremendous role models in your life. Yep. Who other than your family has served as your greatest role model? That's a good question. Yeah, definitely my parents, as I said, but also I would say Dr. Cleansing, uh, Dr. Jim Trotman, who I wrote it right about in the book. Dr. Trotman was the director and founder of the Frederick Douglass Institute at Westchester University. Under his leadership, not only was Westchester University having an institute, but all 14 state system schools would also go on to have an institute. It was from his leadership. And the, uh, the connection to Douglas to, to Westchester was not just something that we're thinking about with diversity and inclusion. Uh, Frederick Douglass gave his last public address at Westchester University. And so that was one of the reasons why we, we, we founded the Institute there. But what I liked about Dr. Trotman was he was also a person that was very accomplished. 
but he always had time for people. And I was always amazed because I was his grad assistant at one point when I was in graduate school and we would have different events. I would go with him and, and I would listen to his presentations and how he interact with people. He would always remember the, the, even the littlest details about different people. And he would somehow be able to work that into his address. And I was really huh. impressed with that. Because That's I impressive. It was because people yeah. connected with him. I mean, he always remembered and thanked the folks who were there or helped him in a certain process. And that's why he was able to be able to be successful and raise funds and do different things because people like being in his presence. And so so Jim Trotman was definitely another person that had influence. And then also a graduate school that uh, when I was there, when I went to Ohio University, uh, Dr. J.W. Smith was another person who had a profound impact on me. And so uh, we're, again, still good friends to this day. Same with Dr. Jim Trotman. We're still good friends. And so those are people that really impact me greatly. That's incredible. So you quote your mom, who sounded like a beautiful person. Yes. Uh, you can't make people do right. I love that. So, yes. so tell us what that means and how that's an important lesson in leadership. Yeah, it's an important lesson because even though we might have good intentions, whether we're a leader or not, and you may be helping people or working with people, you can only thing you can do is show people the way but the other person has to be able to do the right thing. And so that's a hard lesson, especially for leaders, especially for me, because I always wanted to be, again, I'm I'm a middle child, right? I'm always trying to be a problem solver and thing and trying to help folks. And you can only do so much, but the other person has to be able to take the baton and be able to do the right thing. And so it's right. it's hard because it is so things. hard. It is. It is. You can it's lead so the horse to the water, but yep. you can't force him to drink, right? It's it's really it that's really so challenging. What was your biggest obstacle as a leader, even up to now? Hmm. I, I guess one of the that's a good question, uh, Gabby, to have. I, I think there's always a question of whether you were selected for the position because you have the skills and abilities or you're just selected for appearances. Hmm. Um, and so I do write about this in chapter six in my book. I call it Mascot. And I take mm, it yeah, that was the, really an interesting chapter. Yeah, I take that from Malcolm X, right? When he talks about that in his book. And so, yeah. you know, when I, I got to the point where, you know, I've done a lot of things at Westchester University. I mean, I served on the provost's office. I mean, I was on tenure promotion. I was on their uh, academic and policies committee. The list goes on and on. You know, I, find, I founded their, co-founded their multicultural faculty commission. I also uh, co-founded their mentoring programs. So I was doing all these great things. And when it came to the point where trying to advance to the next level, I kind of hit a glass ceiling. Hmm. And I, for me, it was kind of an eye opener. Again, kind of almost like when I was back in high school, high school with the quarterback. Quarterback, situation. yeah. You know, it's kind of a jarring situation when you think that you know all these people and you've been in these positions, you think you're part of the team when you're really not. And that, and that was just kind That's of a painful. slap in the face. To me. It was because it got to, and I talk about it a little bit in my book and I give a situation where it really even made, was even clearer. I got to the point where I was like, okay, if I can just help with this area, help with that. And, and still the answer was no. I was like, man. So then I had to start looking outward for the next leadership uh, experience. But it it's something that, you know, you, you think about as a leader and you don't really know until you start getting the feedback from the folks around you how well you're doing, right? Because it goes back to the title. A lot of times you hear all the negativity or things that go wrong. 
Oh, that's easy to say. That's real easy easy to say. But it's hard that people don't say, oh, that was really great. You did. Thank you for doing this. And so until you start getting some of that feedback, then you realize, okay, I'm making a difference and things are going well and, and people appreciate my leadership style. And it's important to get that. And it's also important to give that back. You say that in your book, too. It's important to give people accolades. It is. And, and I do that a lot. And I think that as I learned that over time, the more that I do that, then I think people then are more likely to reciprocate that with you. And so and people like that. They need to know. They do. Doing. And so I, I, I get you know great pride and joy. I'm at the point now where. A lot of my students now are into different, you know, areas, industries, leadership. And when they send me a little note here and there, it just makes my day like, wow, okay, I'm having a great impact here. Oh, sure. It must. So tell us, Tim, about how being an African-American man has armed you with, you speak about emotional intelligence. Tell us about that. Yes, because a lot of times people in our culture don't realize how they create in-groups and out-groups. And so a lot of times an African-American male growing up, people perceive you differently. And that's one of the the early lessons that I learned that even though I saw myself as me, people saw me as something different before they got to me. And so that way, I then became really perceptive of, it's really the old fashioned in groups and out groups, just how people relate to people. You know, when there's certain meetings, like who gets invited, who doesn't, who are chit chatting to one another and who isn't, who's part of the jokes and who's not. Right. And so that kind of helps you understand that there's different circles that people are in. And so what I try to do is the opposite is that I really try to we think about this home place. I try to engage people and bring more people into those situations so they don't feel like they're left out. That's I wish every leader would do that, really. So, Tim, why are you so passionate? Because you are about this topic of leadership. And, you know, what do you want our listeners and readers to get out of reading No One Cheers for Goliath? Yeah, well, I definitely think that even though I'm in academe, I think the principles really apply to anyone, whether they're in academics or not. And also that, you know, whether you have a title or not, like we're all leaders in different ways, right? Whether it's in our homes, whether it's in the clubs uh, or social uh, groups that we're in, we all take a leadership position in some way. And so I think what I want to kind of convey to people is that we all have a role to play, right? In helping other folks, because I know that when I was given an opportunity to support, I did a lot of things and that would have not have been possible if I wasn't given that opportunity. So I've always tried to impress upon people. If you help someone else, think how you're also unlocking their potential and the impact that they can have. So we all have a role to play. And I also want to just encourage people who are aspiring for leadership positions, whether you're, you are already out and working or whether you're an upcoming student, right? That, that you can do these things, that we need good people in these roles to be able to lead right people in an ethical way. So that so those are some of the reasons why I, I wrote the book. Yeah, it's important to have positive leadership yep. for sure. So yep. much to be learned about this. So throughout this journey, Tim, what was the most important, most surprising thing that you learned about yourself? I was really surprised that that really I could do it because when I was growing up, I was really more of a homebody, an introvert. And so if someone... Uh, would have told me when I was a young person, hey, you know, Tim, you're going to go on 
to be an academic leader and you're going to do all these things. And a motivational speaker. Motivational speaker. <laughs> you're going to do, help other folks. You're going to teach class. I mean, even the, the thought of going on for all the extra schooling, I would have been like, you're great. No, that's not me. <laughs> PhD when you were 16? Yeah. No way. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, one of the prized possessions my, my mother had, I had a little paper, I guess, in third grade. I had to write what I learned over the summer. And I put down not one thing. And so every time when I told her, hey, I'm going to graduate school, now I'm going for a PhD, she would just pull that paper. I would never would have thought that this was you. And so I think that was just the biggest thing that the the personal growth that I've gone through that, you know, I'm definitely a lot more confident and a different person than that young child uh, when I started, you know, existing. So. Well, it it was a great book. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Tell how our ask, tell us how your our listeners can find out more about you and purchase No One Shares for Goliath because it's sure. a must read. It, it is so it's uh, both being sold on Amazon.com uh, and on Barnes and Nobles, and so that is uh, where you can pick it up. And then currently, you know, I'm dean at the Liberal Arts of Montgomery County Community College, and so I have um, a website there if you want to look me up, and so you can find more information on me there. Fantastic. Uh, Great. Thank you, Tim. Thanks so much for sharing. Thank you, Gabby. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Love the book. Listeners, pick it up. Thank you. Uh, This is Gabby Olzak of The Gab Talks. Until next time, keep on reading.